This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. It has now been some 210 days since the wrestling world shut down, well, not really, for coronavirus. It has been some 50 days since the WrestleNomics headquarters relocated to its current new location. I am broadcasting on demand from a TV tray no longer. I come to you today sitting at a hardwood, well, particle wood desk. The creaky chair is gone. See, I'm rocking it right now. You probably can't even hear it. Upgrades are all around. I'm even now a subscriber to Microsoft 365. Oh, yes. Only the latest and greatest version of Excel will I use. The microphone I'm speaking into is, is hanging from a, a stand. It, it's, it's plunging right through the sky in front of my face here at a comfortable angle. All this really due to the generous support of listeners like you. Listeners who are supporting right now at patreon.com slash You can contribute there if you haven't already. But that notwithstanding, you can do just about anything you want in the state of Florida these days. Eric Nardini, the CEO of Barstool Sports, has joined the W Board of Directors. What would happen if Andrew Yang became the Secretary of Labor? What would it mean for WWE and wrestling in general? There's extra content, WWE content on Fox. What will we do without content? Why is U.S. wrestling apparently so incredibly difficult for the people who have to produce it? All that today. But first... Good old governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, is at it again. He's given the Miami Dolphins full clearance to run with 65,000 fans at their stadium in Miami. This is according to John Alba, who said, If WrestleMania were to move to Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, this would indicate that WWE could probably do the same. That is, if they chose to run an event at full capacity. To be clear, not even the Dolphins have said that they will run a football game at full capacity. The Dolphins are running football games with a limited capacity at the stadium for their next home game. An official at Governor DeSantis' office told John Alba that, quote, sports franchises can do as they please. They don't need clearance from the state. End quote. We'll be back with more after these messages. Paid for by DeSantis for COVID. In the middle of a pandemic. Not only do we have a lower death rate, well, we have way lower deaths generally, we have a lower death rate than the Acela Corridor. DC, everyone up there. Floridians need a man who will put optimism above realism. A man who will take the lead on coronavirus. Florida is the new epicenter of the coronavirus. Under Governor Ron DeSantis, Florida has gone from a safe haven for COVID refugees to the nationwide leader in infections. I was the number one landing spot from tens of thousands of people leaving the number one hot zone in the world to come to my state. Floridians need a man who knows the value of new content. People have been starved for content. I mean, we haven't had a lot of new content since the beginning of March. A man who will not back down. We're not rolling back. Like, here's... No, no. A man who will take on the bias of left-wing science. 
And part of the reason is that because you got a lot of people in your profession who waxed poetically for weeks and weeks about how Florida was going to be just like New York. Wait two weeks, Florida's going to be next. Just like Italy, wait two weeks. Well, hell, we're eight weeks away from that, and it hasn't happened. A man who knows that pro wrestling is an essential service. So we've succeeded, and I think that people just don't want to recognize it because it challenges their narrative, it challenges their assumption. And a man who can cut one hell of a pro wrestling promo. So they got to try to find a boogeyman. Maybe it's that there are black helicopters circling the Department of Health. If you believe that, um, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. Nearly 5,000 Floridians have died from COVID, but we know at the end of the day, you care about what affects you. So I think the... um, Every day, and you are doing nothing. So I think. You're information, and you are misleading the public. Over 4,000 people have died, and you are blaming the protesters. You guys have no plans, and you're doing nothing. Shame on you. So at that time, when we had the. Um, when we were here, we had a whole bunch of concerns about what would end up happening in the next few weeks and, and months. We had concerns about uh, testing. We weren't able to even get tests. We weren't even we weren't even able to get tests for all the people who needed them at the time. In fact, paid for by DeSantis for COVID. Well, I suppose this is something that might come up on October 29th, which is a Thursday, which is the next day that WWE will be doing its quarterly earnings report. Uh, this time, it will be with CEO Vince McMahon and new chief financial officer, Christina Salen, making her first appearance on a WWE earnings call. She joined WWE back in August. Does WWE have any outlook on doing a WrestleMania in Tampa in spring 2021, does it have any designs or any updates to give on whether or not it's going to return to regular live events in any form anytime soon? Will there be where they will be able to sell tickets once again? And I doubt uh, safety will be the main topic of discussion on the earnings call. Uh, magic sprays and lip service about how valuable the talent is, notwithstanding. You know, a lot of times on the earnings calls, There are a lot of topics that are interesting as discussion points for wrestling fans, but are not necessarily interesting, and not just because they're not necessarily aware of them, but are not necessarily interesting topics of discussion for the financial analysts on the call. Similarly, that brings to mind, uh, I did this NXT article that I published today about uh, the the mystery of WWE's NXT rights. Basically, we don't know what they are. Maybe it's $30 million dollars. Maybe it's less, maybe it's more. This is a big topic of discussion for wrestling fans, especially wrestling fans who are super into wrestling and they want to know some of the business aspects and want to discuss, you know, the the state of the competition between AEW and NXT, which run head to head on Wednesday night. They want to get some idea of what's the, what's the value, what's the compensation for NXT. That's a, an interesting question for a wrestling fan who wants to know what's what's the value so what's the monetary value of the TV show that is this number 3 brand for WWE what's the value of it 
but the NXT piece of the revenue, especially if it's less than $50 million, which it almost certainly is, is not that interesting to financial analysts. I'm talking 30 to $50 million average annual value. Maybe it's less than that. Ultimately, in the, in the larger picture of a company that's generating probably a billion dollars this year in revenue, whether NXT is getting you know per year $20 million or $30 million or $50 million is not a great issue of concern when we already know how much money is in the core content revenue line. That's enough information for a financial analyst. It would be nice to know more detail, get into the granularity, and to know exactly how the, the core content rights line is, what's within that, what's within that line. But the financial analysts who are setting stock price targets on WB are not as interested in resolving whether NXT is getting more TV revenue than AEW Dynamite. They're not embroiled in that debate. But I suppose if something were to change with the, uh, the, the situation with NXT, if it were to, let's imagine, go back to the network, the WWE network, or if it were to I don't, get shopped around to other networks, it would be important for analysts to know that. And which, by the way, if, if it is a two-year deal that began in September 2019, then that means it would be expiring around September 2021. So that might be happening sometime soon. We'll see. And by the way, if you're noticing some audio issues, I think I'm working them out. If you haven't noticed, well then, nothing's happened. Everything's fine. On Monday, WWE sent out a press release. Dateline, Stanford, Connecticut. WWE Today announced that Erica Nardini, CEO of Barstool Sports, has been elected to its board of directors. Ah, Erica is a seasoned executive with a tremendous track record of building businesses, developing experiences, and engaging different audiences across the media ecosystem. George taught me that word, media ecosystem, said Vince McMahon, W chairman and CEO. Her entrepreneurial spirit, business acumen, and understanding of today's consumers will serve as a perfect addition to our board of directors. Nardini joins the board uh, with Steve Payman, who just joined oh, about a month ago. Steve Payman is the president and chief uh, operating officer of Parkwood Entertainment, the Beyonce production company. Uh, others on the board of directors who are independent directors, meaning they are not full-time employees for WB, include Alan M. Wexler, Manjit Singh, Robin W. Peterson, Laureen Ong, Stuart U. Goldfarb, Jeffrey Speed, and Frank A. Riddick III, the former interim CFO of WB along with corporate executive officers like Vincent K. McMahon, Paul Levesque, and Stephanie McMahon. I don't have much of a take on what this means. I know there was a, a Deadspin article uh, talking about, you know, I understand Barstool has been uh, accused of a number of uh, improprieties, shall we say, uh, under the watch of CEO Erica Nardini. Nardini becomes the third woman currently on the board of directors. Stephanie McMahon tweeted that she is so excited to be Adding Erica Nardini, CEO of Barstool Sports, to W Board Directors, Erica's understanding of how to reach today's consumer, combined with her business-savvy and unapologetic approach, make her a perfect fit for WB. I am late to the uh, Barstool controversy. Apparently, the Barstool founder, Dave Portnoy, uh, shared some racist videos and racist jokes. His employees, uh, people of color employees, asked for an apology and he did not give them an apology either publicly or in private 
or maybe he did say something which has been called a half-assed apology that was over this summer. Back in 2019, Barstool Sport deleted over 61,000 social media posts after content theft controversy, and CEO Erica Nardini says she won't apologize. That's not the fault of Barstool, she said. I can't apologize for every human on the internet who submits a video under a dummy email account and says it's theirs. As far as things that are visible to me, the board of directors appointments don't usually mean much. There are cases where a guy like Frank A. Riddick III becomes the interim CFO after the exit of George Berrios, but oftentimes uh, members of the board of directors get appointed and leave without doing much of anything that's visible to me other than doing uh, certain stock movements and getting quarterly stock awards, uh, which is part of their compensation and which they are given so that their interests are aligned when they do their board of directors duties. They are investors. They are often the board of directors, especially the independent ones. Maybe they're used for relationship building and for expertise in certain areas of business. You know, we have the, the finance guy in Frank A. Riddick III. We have a former uh, Six Flags CFO in Jeffrey Speed. We have a tech guy in Robin W. Peterson. Uh, Manjit Singh is the former president of Home Entertainment for Sony. Steve Payman kind of does it all at Parkwood. And Nardini, a CEO of a sports media company. So the, these are people with backgrounds that are relevant to WWE. So I didn't plan on it, but let's do some quick viewership thoughts from this week. Uh, do I have anything to say about SmackDown? SmackDown on Friday? I don't think so. Did a 2 million viewers. Did its usual uh, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6 in the demo. Raw. And by the way, as I've, as I've written about, I would like to start focusing more on the ranking. That will be difficult in the case of SmackDown because it's uh, not a cable program anymore. And it is not ranked on Showbiz Daily along with the, the cable programs. And all of this, well, I guess not the ranking because at least there is a data point that is published on Showbiz Daily. Uh, I would like to focus more on on the P1849 rank, which again is is published in in every uh, row of Showbuzz Daily. Uh, Raw this week, a number six, despite two uh, football games, did a, a, a about a point seven one point seven million viewers, a, a pretty normal point five in the demo. It went against two football games, but those. Both of those football games were only going against it simultaneously for about 50 minutes. Um, I averaged out sort of what the what the viewership was that Raw was up against, and it was not that much different from the prior week in terms of the total number of viewers who were watching Raw. So I think the to say that it went against two football games, it sort of did. Uh, for a portion, for 50 minutes out of its 180 minutes, Raw was opposed by two football games, but it was opposed by a football game throughout. But Raw for for modern day Raw doing all right. And and I really think we should be focusing more on the ranking, at least in terms of if we're trying to talk about, oh my God, is, is, is W going to get a TV rights increase or not? I think we need to look at the ranking. And probably the P1849 ranking, probably not the total audience ranking. And 1849 is how Showbiz Daily uh, sorts them anyway. And uh, the Mitches, the Mitch, Met, uh, I think it's Mitch Metcalf and Mitch Salem, who run Showbiz Daily, who have formerly worked in the television industry, they would probably 
know, and that's probably why they are sorting them that way. Because, as you know, the key demo is the only thing that matters. Or so it is said. With NXT and AEW going against the vice presidential debate, which was viewed by a much larger audience uh, than the vice presidential debate four years prior, which I think means it was really up. I think we've really got to start talking about whether or not the fly on Mike Pence's head is a draw or not, because I, I think I've turned the corner on that one. But NXT and AEW Dynamite down going against sports and they were going against sports, right? Yeah, they were also going against a baseball game on TBS that did a a slightly higher demo viewership than AEW did. AEW ranking at number 19, uh, NXT ranking not in the top 50, all the way down at, what was it, 56. So off of the, the top 50 chart, which means we just get fewer uh, demo pieces of info for NXT when it doesn't finish in the top 50. Uh, NXT normally does uh, somewhere in the 30s or 40s over the last three quarters prior to this one. Uh, AW average day number seven uh, last quarter, a 19 in Q2, an 11 in Q1. So anyway, I th- this is obviously an exceptional situation because we had a number of vice presidential broadcasts beating it out and a number of sort of uh, pre-debate and post-debate uh, news talk show programming. Uh, bigger picture, this is the sixth consecutive week that AEW has beaten out NXT in terms of total audience and in terms of key demo. Key demo uh, has not been won by NXT over AEW. La- the last time NXT had a larger 18 to 49 audience than AEW was December 18th. December 18th. Uh, many weeks lately, uh, AEW is doubling uh, NXT in in the key demo. Beat uh, NXT by 94% in, in the key demo rating this week. In some weeks, it is as much as 100. In some weeks, it's, it's far less than that, though. Uh, 29%, 21%, 40%. Actually, never mind, those 20% leads that AEW had were, were in the weeks where they were not running head-to-head. To give you an idea of how much better uh, NXT does with the key demo uh, viewership when it's not opposed by AEW. But yeah, just a, a sample of other weeks where it was opposed. We're going back to August and July here, 80%, uh, 67%, 100%, 107%. Uh, as low, though, as 32% or 16% back in early July, late June. But yeah, the key demo uh, competition is a runaway for AEW at this point, having not uh, lost in that category since December. And as we know, the key demo... The only thing that matters! Or at least it matters a lot to advertisers, and it may matter quite a bit to uh, valuing future TV rights. Speaking of TV networks and WTV shows, there will be extra content on Fox coinciding with season two of Friday Night Smackdown on Fox. On Sunday on Fox, the best moments of 2020. As we know, WWE and WrestleMania are about the moments. So not matches, moments. The best moments of 2020, a look back at the year's biggest stars and most memorable moments in WWE. On October 6th, that's this Sunday, which would be the 11th. Sounds like that's going to be on right after football. And then October 11th, Fox Sports personalities come together for a special Friday Night Smackdown kickoff show. That's next week, Friday. 
hosted by Booker T and someone named Renee Paquette, who I've heard used to work for WWE. They're hosting a program with a bevy of special guests. Sounds like this is on FS1 at 7.30 p.m. Uh, nice of Fox to do this. I don't expect it's going to make a lick of difference. If all the advertising that happened for WWE during the Super Bowl uh, earlier this year is any indication. The WWE Draft, though, which is happening as I record this on Friday and happening on Monday on Raw, its official sponsor is Skittles, which I didn't realize until I Googled it this morning. Skittles is a another brand of the Mars Corporation, just like Snickers. Uh, Snickers is for at least... I don't know, maybe it's three years? Multiple years, though. Uh, Snickers has been the official sponsor of WrestleMania, which is, of course, where we get the Snickers doctrine from. But Skittles, the official sponsor here, revenue from these sort of on-screen sponsorships go to the advertising and sponsorships revenue within the media division, which we've expected since COVID to be down. And I believe in Q2 it was down. We'll see if it has any recovery now here in Q3. And then from there this week, as many people may know, Paige was tweeting that she was learning a lot about unionism. AJ Styles made a, made a long post uh, talking about Twitch. Of course, AJ Styles, an avid user of Twitch. WWE taking over all of the Twitch accounts. AJ Styles reassuring everyone that everything is fine. Just trust in WWE. Everything will be fine. We'll get under the umbrella and everything's going to be okay. And I don't think there have been any new tweets or statements on the matter from uh, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang. But he has made allusions in the past to possibly becoming the uh, Secretary of Labor if Joe Biden is elected president, uh, which could happen in, in January if he, if he becomes president. And maybe Yang would be nominated and confirmed sometime after that. So I've been wondering, and I think other people have been wondering, well, what what could really happen? What could uh, Andrew Yang do if he were to become Secretary of Labor? So I think that's, I don't think it's a guarantee that Andrew Yang is going to become Secretary of Labor. It could very well be the case that Joe Biden will, if he is even elected, uh, will nominate a different uh, Secretary of Labor, (laughs) provided Biden is elected and some sort of transfer of power happens, provided that the United States does not descend into some unorderly National chaos. But that notwithstanding, if Yang were to become Secretary of Labor, what, what could happen for WE, which he is clearly named as, as a concern of his? So I asked two lawyers. First, our friend Aaron Bentley, who co-hosts the podcast on this network, the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network, co-hosts Everything Elite, along with our other friend of the show, Iron Mike Spears. Uh, Aaron noted to me that he's not a labor lawyer, but that Yang could certainly issue new department guidance on contractors that would be helpful in litigation so in that case still a lawsuit uh, would be required and i asked jeff estes who is the author of the new bargaining order a legal scholarly article Ooh, there's actually a, i don't know if you can hear this but there is a residential dispute happening i see in the wrestling studios we have the the window open to facilitate the free flow of air, which is especially important in this, these unprecedented COVID times. Ooh, she's done with it. So the issue is there's some loud music being played. We've got a lot of crosstalk happening here. Oh, it's being encouraged that the cops are called. 
invitations to to come over and resolve the issue. And I've now been informed by another correspondent on the scene. There were some additional threats made. That much we can say right now. Now, obviously, we don't want to go into detail until we get additional confirmation on the specifics of what was said. But I can say that the fire department and the police department have showed up on the scene. Apparently, there was not only loud music involved, but there was also fire a controlled fire, what some are calling a bonfire, which was apparently related to the dispute. Now, of course, Russellomics headquarters, where I'm recording right now, here in the financial district of Buffalo, New York, it really is a wonderful neighborhood, but sometimes we do have uh, one neighbor who, on more than one occasion, has found herself at the center of of these neighborly conflicts. Now, I cannot confirm at this time if that neighbor was the neighbor who was involved in this conflict on this occasion tonight, and I will not be updating you with that information as soon as it becomes available. <clears throat> so I also asked Jeff Estes, who is the writer of the very interesting article called New Bargaining Order, which as we've talked about before here, examines the issues around the independent contractor and employee issue as it relates to WB and discusses uh, the possibility of unionization as well. So I asked uh, Jeff about this issue. Uh, if Andrew Yang becomes a Secretary of Labor, what effect might that actually have on WWE? And Jeff noted to me that there probably won't be any concrete effect unless Yang himself gets appointed uh, to a position in the cabinet, such as Secretary of Labor. And that is something that could affect uh, not just WWE, but other businesses that cut corners with employees. It does seem like Yang's profile has grown, and there are a lot of other politicians who are talking a lot more about universal basic income, which is an issue that he talked a lot about during his presidential campaign. Really, the first one to bring the idea into the mainstream. It's interesting that Yang seems to actually be in contact uh, with some W wrestlers after WWE has put out these uh, directives to wrestlers to stop using platforms like Twitch and Cameo. That, that may be the first step to actually get employees to speak up and to discreetly recruit outside help. Um, if there's actually a movement among W wrestlers, W would probably have to classify them as employees. And that's probably the case right now. You don't need Andrew Yang to be Secretary of Labor to do that. But as we've seen on a number of occasions where we've heard reports of many wrestlers being unhappy with a given situation, whether that be problems uh, with COVID or whether that be the stranding of wrestlers in Riyadh in October, uh, October last year, or on this occasion with the third party video platforms, uh, nothing in the end does happen. And as I've discussed here before, the nature of W wrestlers, uh, the ones with the most power being the most highly paid, everyone on the main roster anyway being very well paid, even after all the travel expenses and personal expenses that they have to bear. And given the competitive nature among wrestlers, like it makes it 
uh, difficult in this environment for those wrestlers to band together. Now that said, we have definitely entered an era in wrestling where WWE's power in the business has diminished uh, in terms of the influence that it has over wrestlers simply due to the increase in the number of options that wrestlers have beyond WWE to make a living as a wrestler. And I think as time goes on, and this is not going to be a short time, but over the matter of years or decades, as we get an additional generation of wrestlers who have lived through a time where WWE is still the biggest promotion by far in the world, but is not the only promotion on the radar. And it is less the prospective wrestler's all-encompassing dream to be in WWE and to main event WrestleMania, the less that that is the idealized only option and the extent to which alternative workplaces to be a pro wrestler at continue to exist or maybe even increase in number. Uh, The absolute control and influence that WWE will just politically be able to uh, have over its wrestlers and to deter something like unionization or even other methods of improving uh, workers' benefits, the less of a deterrent there will be to improve those conditions and the more likely it will be that something is done about it. But we'll see. The large issue for WWE as a company, in terms of from an investor perspective, or even from the perspective of a a potential acquirer of WWE, is that that employee independent contractor issue, the misclassification issue, is a hidden liability within the company. It is the difference between, I don't know, many millions in profit each year that uh, would, would go to the cost of having all these wrestlers be employees instead of independent contractors. Now, the, it could just be the, the fact that if such a scenario were to happen where they converted everybody to employees rather than independent contractors, that they would just have fewer wrestlers uh, within their company and they wouldn't have to pay the expense uh, related to benefits and travel expenses and things of that nature. You know, they don't have to have the 250 to 300 wrestlers that they have in our contract currently. Nonetheless, when you've got a company who last year, you know, made over $70 million in net income, year before that, $99.6 million in net income, uh, some of that net income, maybe 10 or 20 million of it uh, would go away if the same wrestlers were employees rather than independent contractors. So if you're not that Vince McMahon is ever going to sell WWE in his lifetime, but if you're valuing the company and you're thinking about buying WWE, this company may not be as profitable as it seems. If you have to inherit this uh, liability of maybe someday, it seems inevitable having to convert all of the independent contractors to employees. We're not- In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous 
round bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's gonna be junk you're you, you know what i mean like you know what you're probably gonna get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying oh, hey look at some random cards or whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club you can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Off again, that's arena club.com slash VOW net, arena club.com slash VOW net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voice of Wrestling Podcast Network. All the independent contractors, but the wrestlers from independent contractors to employees, or at least a great number of them. So thanks again to Aaron Bentley and Jeff Estes for helping me understand the legalities of uh, certain labor issues that I am not as well-versed on. Uh, just some plugs here. There's still more to come, but some plugs here about what's happening on WrestleNomics.com. Uh, on Sunday, the WrestleNomics Pro Wrestling Company Metrics Q3 2020 report. That was put out. It's a 29-page report full of uh, tables and charts and graphs. You can get that in PDF form either on PayHip for $5.99 or by becoming a $5 or $10 supporter through patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. The report, again, is 29 pages, includes a number of important media trends, wider media trends, U.S. television viewership, covering WRAW, WSmackdown, AEW Dynamite, WNXT, and Impact Wrestling. The TV rights value, which is known for at least three out of those five programs. The revenue per viewer hour for those programs, the latest on what is known about WWE Network subscribers, New Japan World subscribers, AEW pay-per-view buys, the latest in trends on Google web search for WWE, AEW, New Japan, Impact Wrestling, and Ring of Honor, the latest in YouTube trends, Impact Wrestling, and AEW for YouTube views, according to the data at Social Blade. AEW and Impact are neck and neck. Uh, for these last two months of August and September. Those two doing about 30 to 60 million YouTube views per month. Compare that to WWE doing around, uh, well, in September did 1.5 billion, 1.8 billion in August. Social media followers uh, in that as well, uh, in the PDF. If you want to check that out, you can go to WrestleNomics.com. 
it's the third blog post down right now. Or if you're on desktop, it's right at the top on the right-hand bar. Other written stuff I've done in the last week, I did the blog post titled, Three Metrics That Will Determine the Future of the U.S. Wrestling Business. I've discussed this in some detail already on the podcast, but here it is in written form if you want to read the words and see the, the visual graphs that go along with it. Sort of driving home the point that I think we're concentrating too much on viewership alone over time. It makes sense to look at NXT and AEW viewership head-to-head, but the declines over time that we're seeing for Raw and SmackDown, I don't think for the most part uh, we are looking at in the right way. And there is a better way especially if we're trying to assess what the future TV rights value will be for the major wrestling programs. And then, just posted on Friday, today as I record this, uh, the mystery of WNXT's rights fees on the USA Network, a question that I am asked often about, just laying out everything I know about the subject right now. That's at WrestleNomics.com. The Patreon, if you would be so generous to support, is Patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. If you're not ready to support monetarily and you would like to support some way, just share one of my articles, post a link to it somewhere, tell a friend about it, tell a friend about this podcast. That stuff really does help a great deal. All right, so now we're late into the show. We can get into the, uh, the deep thoughts. So I was thinking this week as I... Uh, was exposed to more wrestling programming this week than usual. You know, one of my basic assumptions about wrestling is very optimistic that this is the old critical optimism that I used to talk about with Mookie, that I think wrestling, U.S. wrestling in particular, is so not realized to its potential, that it has this great high potential, but it basically almost never uh, explores that potential at least not to a great extent. And I was thinking this week about why, why that is the case. In my assessment, it is the case. Why is that the case? And I remember somebody telling me a few years ago about something called Founders Syndrome. And I don't know if this fully accounts for it, but according to Wikipedia, Founders Syndrome is the difficulty faced by organizations where one or more founders maintain disproportionate power and influence following the effective initial establishment of the organization leading to a wide range of problems. And you can imagine maybe some ways in which that might apply to, I guess, Vince, um, maybe Antonio Inoki at a certain point. And then I was thinking about this, this sort of variation on that, or at least uh, this reminds me of maybe another way to describe what's happening in, in U.S. wrestling, at times anyway. This sort of this, this principle where uh, the height of your uh, economic power or political influence in the wrestling industry coincides with the decline in your savvy for the industry, your understanding of the industry. This would be the idea that, you know, it, it takes a long time to achieve a certain uh, amount of influence and power. And sort of the more powerful you become within wrestling, the looser your grip on what's really effective business-wise in the industry, the looser that grip becomes. And I'm referring to the economic effect that creative has. On, on a wrestling business, on a wrestling promotion. And this doesn't apply universally, right? I don't think it applies to Giant Baba. Uh, Baba's peak creatively and economically, his peak as a booker was in the last few years of his life, right? His most successful period uh, as a promoter and as a booker was 
probably the early to mid nineties. And there, I think there is a decline going into the late nineties for all Japan pro wrestling. Maybe that's what happened, but, and great podcast, by the way, by uh, WH Park and Hisami talking about, this is on post wrestling, talking about the life and career of Mitsuharu Misawa. In fact, I guess you could say this about Misawa towards the end of his life, although he, he died at a relatively young age in terms of the decline of Noah in the last years of his life. But, you know, sort of better examples of this, again, the the, sort of the height of your, uh, the increase of your economic slash political wrestling power and the inverse relationship of your effectiveness in terms of being a creative mind. This does seem to apply to, to Vince in the present, to Antonio Inoki in the early 2000s. Uh, in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And it sounds like Founders Syndrome as well in his case. He created himself as this great martial arts fighter as a pro wrestler in the 70s, and then he thought that in the early 2000s that pro wrestling now had to transcend on to uh, be more like the MMA, which had become much more popular than pro wrestling at the time. And so we had Usher Yuji Nagata into massacres from the likes of Mirko Krokop and Fedor Emelianenko. Bill Watts, a revered booker in the 80s, in 1992 and 93, gets more power than ever, becomes president of w- WCW. And while there's some, some good stuff during that period, so the executive summary of that, that period in his career is that he was not in touch with what was going on in wrestling at that time. Vince Russo, come to think of it, would be a great example. For whatever you want to say about Vince Russo being, uh, how much did he really contribute to the upswing in WF business? Was it really him or was it Vince McMahon filtering out his ideas? His peak in understanding the business certainly did not follow as he gained power following 1999. Cornette probably as well as he uh, came into power in Ring of Honor. And certainly now he's falling apart completely. That's nothing more than a... Well, anyway. And here's the thing is, I'm, I want to go through a bunch of um, issues that I, that I see with pro wrestling to the extent that it affects the economics of pro wrestling. And I find myself a little bit self-conscious because, and I barely even want to, I'm reluctant to talk about this because I think it's terrible to give him oxygen about whatever he's doing. But the sort of bad case, the out-of-touch case that Cornette has made for what's wrong with wrestling, in some ways it is directionally correct. But then he takes it to absurd and sometimes hateful extremes that are not only bigoted, but have no validity in the face of modern economic wrestling trends. But anyway, in a sense that he has ruined a certain sort of what would otherwise be a valid approach to critiquing wrestling. By that, I mean things like, Hey, there's, they're doing too much of this or that in a given situation. I think that sort of critique can be superficially read as, man, this sounds like something Cornette would say, and it can be dismissed. Um, at least it's, 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 the effectiveness of the critique can be you know, dismissed and, and rendered useless based on the resemblance to the uh, economically irrelevant, hateful and bigoted uh, expressions of Jim Cornette. So with that out of the way, and maybe none of what I'm about to say will sound related to any of that that I just said at all, but anyway... Why is U.S. wrestling so hard? And I think there are a multitude of reasons. But let's take one issue, 
that I think most people listening will will find easy to to think about. We think about the uh, you know, take WWE and AEW sort as, as a dichotomy of this issue, the issue of creative freedom. In WWE, it's pretty clear that there isn't enough creative freedom, and wrestlers who have left WWE, a number of them have said as much. Promos, matches, other aspects are highly controlled. Much of what is said on screen is scripted, commentary notwithstanding, but the language that the commentators are to use is highly controlled. It's one reason among many that it's so difficult in WWE to get very over. Wrestlers don't sound like humans. Storylines don't develop organically. I'm not going to go into great detail about that. You have other podcasts that will. And the emergence of AEW is, is in many ways a response to WWE. Uh, I think it, it, AEW is, is in many ways a response to WWE in general. Um, as I've said before here, and probably have written, there is no AEW without the opportunity WWE has created for AEW to exist. The disenfranchisement of fans and of talent that WWE has created uh, is, is necessary, is one of multiple necessary conditions for the AEW business opportunity to be viable. So AEW is a response to WWE in that way, and it is also a response in at least one other way in terms of the freedom that it offers its talent in contrast to WWE. And in some ways, it overcorrects for that problem. I think the creative freedom that Cody has been given has been used very well. I'm not so sure about the creative freedom that others have been given. The Young Bucks, maybe Omega, but beyond the executive vice presidents, at least in the first few weeks of his appearances on AEW, Miro, the former Rusev, seems to be exploring a creative freedom that is no less than what was happening with him in WWE, not maximizing uh, the economic potential of his abilities. Uh, again, this is not the podcast where I'm going to uh, pick apart segments, but I'd point out those examples as impressions of a wider trend in wrestling, a wider phenomenon that I think is pretty common, that there is this difficult balance that is probably not thought about enough, if at all, in these terms, that there's this balance that has to be managed between giving the right talent enough freedom and giving the right talent enough direction. Some wrestlers have good ideas and some wrestlers have bad ideas, including wrestlers who are otherwise tremendous performers. And on top of all that, you've got to manage morale and people's egos, which are compounded with the creative freedom that you give them or the lack of it. So creative freedom is just one example of why it's so hard to do pro wrestling well, especially in the U.S. for some reason. And maybe that's a good entry point because it leads to other reasons. As I said, the, the freedom that you give people, the amount of direction that you instill on people may affect morale. And if this were some other sport, some legitimate sport with a final score at the end of the game, all of these creative strategic ideas would be validated or invalidated by the wins and losses or the other real easy-to-find statistics. But we have no such legitimate wins and losses, and we have no, well, we have very limited and ambiguous statistics, many of which we try to handle on this program. But it's very often hard to extract the reasons why the numbers are what they are. 
So you've got to manage the at times fragile morale of wrestlers, maybe wrestlers even over index in their emotional fragility, their ego sensitivity, maybe. Not me though, of course. I'm fine. As long as you book me perfectly. So there are all the human problems. You can have other human problems like injuries and other uncontrolled events that interrupt your long-term plans, if you even make them. But <laughs> but I think the wrestling business is not, uh, still has not recovered, and I don't know if it ever will, uh, recover from the inflation of the great competition between Raw and Nitro, which is sort of like the, the inflation of currency has diluted the effectiveness of a lot of the tools that we use or these days try to use to create economic effects like angles, gimmick, gimmicks, gimmick matches, special matches, title matches, titles. Now, of course, in, in different promotions, those things have been diminished to different degrees. But the Monday Night War really blew out our tolerance uh, for angles and for special moments, moments that are supposed to be special. And now we have a, a whole generation of, of wrestling fans, and we'll continue to have more of them, or a greater portion of them, who have only experienced wrestling, at least in real time, in this era, where that degree of what we might, might call angle dilution has just become the fabric of U.S. pro wrestling. You know, the war ended in 2001, you know, until last year, between 2001 and 2018, W had no real strong competitor. Impact kind of came close. But despite there being no more war, we still kept around all the habits of the war. You know, it's sort of like we said, you know, this is a special time of war and we need uh, extraordinary things like enhanced interrogation. And now, even though the war is over, we're st well, we still need the enhanced interrogation and wiretapping. And despite the, the wrestling war in 2001 ending, the rate at which we do angles and the number of weekly hours of core content with star versus star in every match hasn't diminished. All of these tools, these angles and gimmicks have become part of the fabric of wrestling rather than being an outstanding and meaning-making thing. Angles and all these special moments that are supposed to be tools to enhance the economics of wrestling have become expected parts of the creative language of wrestling rather than interruptive elements that can genuinely create conflict and interest and metrics. All of these special things have become expected rather than interruptive. They need to be interruptive to be effective to be actually unusual and therefore meaningful. But these devices, these angles and stip matches, by being overused, have been hollowed out of their meaning. And that's one reason why we now just sort of go through the motions of conflict rather than actually creating and resolving conflict. I don't know if this is what people mean when they say this phrase, but to me, that's what playing wrestler looks like 
Is that you're, and this manifests in all sorts of ways, but you're just doing, we're, we're just doing the thing that has come to be expected in wrestling. You know, one point that I hear raised a lot is, oh, this baby face turned heel, and now all of a sudden this heel is just doing all these dastardly things that have no development behind them other than they just switch from the baby face team to the heel team. And let's pause right here for a second because what I'm not advocating here is that wrestling needs to be, I don't know, like creatively or aesthetically or artistically better. Now, what I'm describing uh, would result in a better creative artistic wrestling, but that is not the point. The more, I don't know, genuine and authentic development of emotions and personalities and conflict has a economic consequence that at least for the moment I am more concerned with for the purposes of a podcast called Russellnomics. Now, there are other things at play here in terms of uh, watering down and diluting the meaningfulness of angles. Some of it has to do with what I might call the other epistemological reasons, and by that I just mean the growing awareness of the wrestling fan, accurate or not, nonetheless perceived, a perceived understanding of how wrestling is put together, how its inner workings are conducted. Now, that's not a factor that people in wrestling can be expected to control. I'm not advocating that people go back and protect the business. I don't know why I did the Vince voice there, because he's certainly not advocating for that either, unless we're talking about Twitch. I'm not suggesting that you have to go and, and work people into thinking that it's real again. That's an issue that's out of the hands of people in wrestling. That idea of making people think that something is real opens itself up to a whole other set of problems that I'm not going to try to get into tonight. And, and despite that issue, nonetheless, at many times, in U.S. wrestling even, there's been great success at getting wrestling fans who are very aware that it's predetermined and how it works. There have been many occasions of U.S. wrestling fans getting tremendously invested in wrestling, despite those facts and that knowledge. So that's another big piece of why it's so hard to do U.S. pro wrestling well. We've diluted the meaning of so much, of so many angles, of so many other kinds of special occasions. So much so that everything is special and therefore nothing is special. In a way, we've rendered wrestling audiences like drug addicts who have just become completely numb to the dose that is being administered. To take the imperfect an analogy further, we are maybe just wearing their internal organs down now. But I, I, even I wouldn't be that pessimistic, though. I'm, I'm a critical optimist. But related to that, conflict does not develop in a natural way that would otherwise get audiences emotionally invested in the program and therefore spend more time and money on it. So that's one piece, another chapter I'll get into tonight. So if Marshall McLuhan had to study the wrestling business, something he might uh, have as a takeaway is that U.S. wrestling is still carrying the habits of its pre-TV or non-TV past. What do I mean by that? 
wrestling started being on TV in the 50s, right? Like everything else. But also even after that time, wrestling was not primarily a TV product. TV was very important, especially as a promotional vehicle. But if you think about it this way, we're now, what, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. We've, we've been through about seven decades of pro wrestling TV in the United States. The first four decades of that history, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, wrestling TV was largely studio wrestling. Filmed in TV studios much smaller than a sports venue. Filmed in front of small audiences. Used as a promotional vehicle to sell tickets to an arena event. Which was not you know, primarily telecast. Sometimes you'd see clips of the arena event on the TV show. But anybody who spent some time watching old territorial wrestling knows what I'm talking about here. The vast majority of wrestling's revenue through the 80s was generated from ticket sales. And wrestling programs or wrestling promotions made very little, if anything, if not negative value, if, if, if they weren't actually paying to be on TV. Uh, they didn't make money from television. They ran television so that they could promote matches and sell tickets. Now, I would theorize that this model where the arena event is the most important thing, and of course th this approach would predate, there's no reason why this approach wouldn't predate TV, what I'm about to say here, and that you're working for the live audience. What you do in front of the live large audience is the most important part of the product that you produce as a wrestler at that time. So what does this mean? Maybe this meant that wrestlers were taught or encouraged to do a lot of pantomime, exaggerated expressions, what looks to me like now overacting, you know, I know I, I personally was taught, uh, and, and this is not necessarily a bad thing to teach people, but it, I was taught, you know, phrases like you got to work for people sitting up in the nosebleeds, which actually for an indie wrestler doesn't make much sense. But, <laughs> but basically it was instilled in, in me that the audience isn't going to notice what you're doing. So you have to make it really noticeable. And while in some ways that may be good advice, I don't think that is as relevant when wrestling is now primarily a TV product or a media product. Now at a moment where uh, there are several cameras filming your match or you're working in an indie event in a venue no bigger than a banquet hall. Now, true, on the highest level in WWE or AEW in pre-COVID times, you're still working sports venues with thousands of people in attendance very far away. But those people who are the furthest from you in physical space make up a very small minority of the audience. When in the case of WWE or AEW, you've got, uh, in the case of Raw and SmackDown, you've got about 2 million people watching you live. In the case of AEW, just under a million maybe over a million when it comes to DVR. But yet we are still teaching people to pantomime and overact for people who are, for, you know, a few hundred people who are, you know, hundreds of feet away or whatever the measurement is. And in fact, here we sit in COVID times where, the, where such a style could not be more irrelevant. 
where you're wrestling in front of zero or very, very few live fans. Whereas before pre-COVID, let's say, you know, let's say you're wrestling, you know, uh, audience on Raw, one point, uh, let's do 1.8 million people are watching Raw. There's, say, 6,000 people in the arena. That's 1.8 million. That's 1,806,000. So, you know, 6,000 divided by 108,600. That's, uh, what is this, 0.3%, 0.3% of the, of the people are there live who are watching your match. To now where that's that's even smaller than than that in COVID. You know, we're basically talking about the the percentage of people who are watching your match is is a hundred percent. They're watching on TV with all these cameras doing whatever it is that they're supposed to do. And in the case of WWE, they're shaking the camera and shit. But anyway, that's a separate issue. Let's not get tangential here. So what am I saying? We're we're still wrestling an arena style. For a TV audience. We're still teaching people to wrestle an arena style. For a TV audience. We're still still teaching people to wrestle. As if this is still a live event business primarily. And not a media business primarily. And I think this is why. You know just. Seeing some of the wrestling that I saw. On television this week. It felt. uh, Deeply imitative. And derivative. At times it felt like the performers were imitating the idea of wrestling in the way that every expression and bit of body language has to be so overacted. And come to think of it, in, in Japanese wrestling, that quality is not as pronounced. I wonder if part of the reason is because Japanese wrestling never existed. Pre, didn't really, you know, Ricky Dozon didn't really exist pre-TV. There is only really a Japanese wrestling business after TV. And Japan lacks as long and as deep of a of a arena wrestling style legacy. Maybe. But yeah, I think we have not in the US adapted our wrestling style for the ways in which the business, the revenues of the business has changed. As as somebody who spent a lot of time studying economics the revenues and the expenses of wrestling i can tell you you cannot run a live event with the production values that you see on television uh, in pre-covid in a major sporting venue you cannot run those venues with the production values that you see and make those events profitable with ticket revenue alone events of that scale and that quality can only be profitable if there is revenue from media of some form, whether that be in the form of TV rights fees, whether that be in the form of pay-per-view, or maybe in the form of some sort of streaming service. Uh, there are other issues, of course, but uh, there's just some of the ways that I think wrestling has not, we have not in wrestling been reflective enough. The people with influence in wrestling, the decision makers in wrestling have not encouraged progress and adaptation enough. In the case of what I just talked about, about arena-style wrestling, or the, the overacting that comes with it, the decision-makers in wrestling have only valued and rewarded and hired and encouraged this kind of overacting that I think is counterproductive economically. And I don't think, and I hope I'm not just projecting my taste. 
I think wrestling would be more economically successful if among a large package of other things there was not quite so much uh, over exaggerating uh, perhaps what the what the variety uh, survey called cartoonish qualities in wrestling that's all I have for this week I think you got your fill of the plugs earlier go to wrestlonics.com read what I've written your support is essential and appreciated go to patreon.com slash wrestlenomics encourage what I do to continue to be ad free and free free share this stuff if you like it follow wrestlenomics at wrestlenomics follow me at Brandon Thurston I'm Brandon Thurston I'll talk to you next time